Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have spoken to us in your word. It is true. It is truth. Lord, help us now as we look to it to receive encouragement, to endure and to persevere in faith and hope. May we be filled with joy by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. First Peter chapter 4 is where we are this morning. That's not fair. You've probably said it. If you haven't said it, you've at least certainly thought it. Other people have said it to you. Because we're made in the image of a just and righteous God, when we experience circumstances in our lives that we perceive to be inequitable or unjust, we cry out for justice, fairness. I say when we perceive these things to be inequitable or unjust because our evaluation of what is and is not fair is somewhat skewed many times. We see this, I think, especially in kids, don't we? That's not fair. It's not limited to them. We do it too. Our evaluation of what is fair and what is not is not necessarily any more accurate than our kids. For honest, both for kids and for adults, that's not fair. It can effectively be synonymous with, I don't like that. But it seems like a more effective plea if we appeal to some sort of external, uh, objective standard of fairness rather than our internal subjective standard, feeling. That's not fair. It carries more weight than just, I don't like that. You might wonder if Peter's audience felt this way. Peter was writing, as we've been talking about, to Christians in what is now Turkey at a time when they were facing increasing opposition and persecution from the world around them. And this opposition they were facing was certainly not fair. They had done nothing to merit the kind of treatment that they were receiving from the world. They were striving to be holy, to love one another earnestly, to conduct themselves without malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. They're doing their best to keep their conduct in the world excellent, to honor everyone, to be sympathetic, tender-hearted, humble. They were diligent not to repay evil for evil and reviling for reviling, but rather to bless others. They sought to minister to others with gentleness and respect, keeping a good conscience so that no one would have anything evil to say about them. They're committed to living lives marked by self-control and love and hospitality and service. They were not perfect. No, not at all. They're still but sinners who set all of their hope for salvation on grace alone, grace received from outside of them rather than setting their hope for salvation on anything that was within them. Yet by the Spirit's power at work within them, they were striving to keep their consciences clear before God and men and to live truly upright, godly lives. In general, they were not giving the world around them any cause to hate them. And yet, like their Lord, they were hated without a cause. 
You can understand why they might be prone to cry. That's not fair. We may not experience the exact same kind of suffering as Peter's audience did, but the Bible does tell us that in various ways, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How does God comfort us and call us to respond to such suffering in our lives? Thankfully, He does not respond to us the way that we might be prone to respond to our kids when they say something is not fair. That's not fair. Yeah, well, life's not fair. Get used to it. That, of course, is, uh, is code for, that might not be fair, but I don't really want to argue with you about my administration of fairness right now. God does not respond to us this way. He doesn't say, yeah, life's not fair, suck it up, get used to it. What we read here in 1 Peter 4 is what God says to His people who, despite their earnest desire to love and follow Him, to love and bless others, still suffer opposition and hostility from the world around them. It's true. They are being treated unfairly. What are they to do? What are we to do when we suffer because our loyalty is first and foremost to Jesus? Find here in 1 Peter 4 three directives, three commands that are to shape our response to opposition and suffering that we face because we're Christians. First, don't be surprised or ashamed. Second, rejoice and glorify God. And third, entrust yourself to God and do good. So don't be surprised or ashamed. Rejoice and glorify God and entrust yourself to God and do good. We'll look at the text here, verses 12 to 19, under those headings. But one brief clarification I should mention is that the suffering that Peter is talking about here is specifically suffering that is related to uh, the reader's Christian faith. He's not thinking about the suffering that we endure simply because we live in a fallen world. The world is broken and corrupt, and there are things like diseases and disasters. He's not thinking of the suffering that we bring on ourselves because of our own sin and foolishness. And he's not necessarily thinking of the suffering we face just from the sins of others committed against us in general. He's addressing here suffering that comes for no other reason than that we are Christians. He makes this point clear. He describes the fiery trials his readers are enduring as a sharing in Christ's sufferings, being insulted for the name of Christ, and suffering as a Christian. So while what he says here may have a, a wider application to other forms of suffering, the point he's focused on here in context is suffering that comes because of our faith in Christ. So let's look now to the text. We begin in verse 12. We find Peter saying that if you suffer because you're a Christian, don't be surprised by it and don't be ashamed of it. If you suffer because you're a Christian, don't be surprised by it and don't be ashamed of it. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's fascinating to me that there are many Christians who, who seem to be utterly flabbergasted when they are not spoken well of by the world, when they're actually opposed because they're Christians. 
For example, sometimes we, we get all up in arms because of the way Christians are portrayed in media or culture. For example, I don't think I've ever seen what I would regard as an accurate, fair representation of an evangelical Christian in a movie or a TV show. They're almost always grossly exaggerated caricatures, the equivalent of those portraits you get on the boardwalk. That's just one example. Opposition and hostility comes in other ways, in an increasingly post-Christian culture. Uh, Biblical, historical, classical Christianity is pushed more and more to the margins of society, and its adherents viewed by the world as nothing more than members of a cult. We find ourselves facing relational, cultural, and even legal hostility from those who hate what and who we stand for. That's to say nothing of our brothers and sisters around the world who also face physical persecution, who find not just their public reputation, but their livelihoods and their very lives threatened because they are Christians. As the text says, this is not strange. In fact, for us to experience this actually puts us in a very similar place to Peter's original audience, doesn't it? And yet many Christians respond to this sort of hostility with astonishment and shock. That's not fair. How dare the world push us out to the margins? How dare they threaten us? Don't they know who we are? Deep down, we think that we should be in control, that everyone should be fair to us. We think, to be frank, that this should be, or at least feel, more like our home, like we're natives here and not exiles. But where did we come up with this idea that our allegiance to Christ would lead us to become highly respected members of society, greatly esteemed by all the world? Because we didn't learn it from the Bible. In fact, we find quite the opposite. We, we face hostility from the world and we get all bent out of shape, but God says, why are you so surprised by this? What is strange is not for Christians to be opposed and oppressed by the world, What's strange is for Christians to be loved and accepted by the world. Remember, Jesus said, we read it earlier, that if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Scottish pastor John Brown said it this way, the spirit of Christianity is so directly opposed to the spirit of the world that the wonder is not that there has been so much persecution, but that there has not been more. We think, do we not, that the absence of opposition to Christianity ought to be normal. We certainly want that. The Christians ought to be thought well of by the world, treated fairly. But is it possible that the absence of such suffering for the sake of Christ would, would not actually be a sign of God's favor would be a sign of the world's favor. We remember friendship with the world is enmity with God. Might might the absence of such suffering indicate that the church is more like the world than like Christ? A church that is like the world is no threat to the world's beliefs or values or power, and so it can be conveniently accepted and ignored by the world. Just as Jesus was hated by the world without cause, so too those who rest on Him as Savior and follow Him as Lord will be hated for no cause but their love for Him. Next time you find yourself being treated in some way unfairly, 
simply because you're a Christian, you can be grieved, but you shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said it would happen. In fact, it just confirms that what He said was true. We're not to be surprised, nor are we to be ashamed. Look at verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The world's objective in opposing and slandering and marginalizing Christians is to minimize, or worse, to stamp out the church and its gospel. It's part of an effort endemic in those who are yet in their sins to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Like the world hated Jesus because He testified to it that its deeds were evil, so the world hates Christians whose very presence bears witness against the world about sin and future judgment. It would be quite a coup for the world to make Christians ashamed of being Christians. Therefore, either to shrink back, isolate, cordon ourselves off from the world so as not to be a threat to, (coughs) pardon me, their way of life, or to cave to social and cultural pressures, and just assimilate into the world, losing any kind of distinct witness, anything that would mark us off as different from the world. Salt that stays in the shaker does no good for the food but neither does salt that has lost its saltiness, as Jesus said. When we face trials because we are Christians, we're being challenged to choose what we value more, the approval of men or the approval of God. We're also being challenged to show where our hope lies, in a good reputation with the world or in the grace that will be brought to us at the coming of the Lord. The world will give you every reason to be ashamed of Jesus and His teaching. It will call what is true false and what is false true. It will say that the Bible isn't true and that if you believe what it teaches, then you're a brainless backwards Neanderthal. It will call what is good evil and what is evil good. It will say that what the Bible teaches about ethics is primitive, abusive, hateful, and flat-out wrong, which is ironic given that such criticism comes from a worldview that claims there is no objective moral standard of right and wrong. No one is wrong and everyone is right without exception, except that is, of course, for Christians. Everyone knows that Christians are hateful, bigoted, homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic extremists who ought to be driven from polite society. Such slanderous accusations are calculated to make you ashamed of Jesus, of the gospel, of the scriptures, of the church, to lure you away from your devotion to Christ and call you into friendship with the world. The world will do whatever it can to convince you that its approval here and now is of greater value than God's eternal approval. After all, you could avoid all this suffering and hardship, couldn't you? You can hear in this the the tempting voice of the deceiver, the enemy of our souls. All this I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. So there are places in your life where you are tempted to be ashamed of being a Christian, ashamed of Jesus and what he taught, where you can identify that you have been ashamed places where it would be easier for you just to avoid saying or doing anything that would mark you as belonging to Jesus, 
because that might bring some kind of hardship. There's a cost to following Christ. <coughs> following Christ costs our love for the things of the world, but it also costs the world's love for us. We no longer possess that. While the world may try to make us ashamed, we must have confidence that what we gain in Christ is of infinitely greater value than being loved by the world. As it was said of Moses that he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. We will suffer as Christians, but we should not be surprised by it, nor should we be ashamed of it. Instead, Peter says, we are actually to rejoice and glorify God. Look at verse 13. Do not be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And again in verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. This might seem a bit backwards at first. Perhaps we would understand better if he said, instead of being surprised or ashamed, that we should just endure. Well, that's certainly true. He, he goes beyond that. He says that we are actually to rejoice and glorify God in the midst of our suffering. What's that all about? We've talked about this a bit before, earlier in 1 Peter. He doesn't mean that we are to rejoice in or about the experience of suffering itself. Jesus didn't himself rejoice in his suffering itself, but rather for the joy set before him, the joy of what his suffering would accomplish, he endured the cross. And in the same way, we don't celebrate the suffering itself, as if we enjoy it. We don't rejoice in being hated by the world, the experience of it, but we do rejoice in what that reality points to, and that's this. Suffering for the sake of Christ marks us out as belonging to God's people. We're not to go looking, uh, out looking to bring suffering upon ourselves. Some Christians, by their behavior, seem to be courting persecution. We're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to do anything sinful that would bring suffering on us necessarily. But if in the course of our endeavor to live a godly life, we suffer on account of it, it acts like a litmus test. It proves who truly belongs to Christ. It's like in John 6, when Jesus begins to teach some hard things that people are a bit embarrassed about or scandalized by. These crowds had been following Jesus, seeing Him perform miracles, and they were they were astonished by him. They were enraptured by him, but they didn't necessarily want to follow him, commit to him. As Jesus begins to teach these hard things, the crowd say, this is hard. Who can listen to this? And they begin to turn back from him. Jesus then turns to the twelve and doesn't say, boy, I better change my teaching in order to keep the crowds. He says, do you want to go away as well? And then Peter responded. Peter. Peter responded. 
And he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This suffering that would happen on account of Christ proved who among them was a genuine disciple and who among them had but temporary false faith. These trials come, Peter says in verse 12, to test you. These aren't random. They, they serve a purpose. We saw this already in 1 Peter, especially so back at the beginning of chapter 1. Peter says that his uh, readers are being grieved by various trials, for the, 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 the purpose of which was to test the genuineness of their faith, to purify and prove it so that it would result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is much what we see in verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And this helps us get our minds around what he says in verses 17 and 18. In verse 16, he writes that if we suffer as a Christian, if we're insulted for the name of Christ, we should not be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. And then he says, for, so he's explaining something of why we are to glorify God, that we bear the name of Christian, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he goes on to quote from Proverbs 11, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We hear something like judgment beginning with the household of God, and, and it seems that Christians immediately forget the doctrine of justification by faith alone and start thinking that well, God, God is now judging us and, and maybe we're not really going to be saved, or who, you know, who knows, and that's, that's not what Peter is saying here. The idea of judgment in the Bible doesn't refer exclusively to a decision regarding a person's uh, eternal standing before God. It doesn't exclusively refer to a decision of justification or condemnation, life or death, heaven or hell. There is, of course, a judgment that does determine just that, the judgment that all people will stand before God and face. The temporary suffering that we Christians endure now, however severe it might be, is nothing compared to the eternal punishment that awaits those who do not obey the gospel, those who do not turn to God in repentance and receive the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But for Christians, that verdict, the verdict of this judgment has already been pronounced over us, justified in Christ, no condemnation. When Peter says here that judgment is beginning with the household of God, God's family, His people, he doesn't mean the, that the determination of someone's eternal standing is happening, but rather he's saying this is something more like an evaluation of an item's genuineness. That's how it fits with the language of testing or trials. Through suffering on account of our faith, our faith is being tested and proven as genuine, like gold in the refiner's furnace, imagery that Peter used back in chapter 1 and probably intends for us to recall because he calls the, the trials we face here fiery trials. As those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, though, God's blazing holiness does not consume us in wrath. It purifies us in love, something that God is doing in us now, disciplining us that we might share in His holiness. 
And such suffering, fiery trials now, is a mark that you are a part of God's family, which is why he says in verse 16 that we are to glorify God for suffering as those who are called Christians, those who are belonging to Christ. Suffering on account of Christ is like a sort of DNA test that proves that you are a genuine member of the family, a legitimate heir and not an imposter. And that in turn makes sense of what he says in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Not because the suffering, the insulting in and of itself is a blessing, but because it means the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's evidence that the spirit of the living God, who is the down payment of our inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, dwells within us. Peter would have heard Jesus say much the same thing himself in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's not fair. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Responding in this way may seem counterintuitive to us, but doing so reveals where our hope truly is. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why the Lord uses suffering in our sanctification. It's like divine radiation therapy. It burns away our cancerous love for the world that if left unchecked would kill us. So how do you respond to suffering for being a Christian? Perhaps we need to start further back. Do you ever suffer at all because you're a Christian? Quote John Brown again, we are, we are not to court persecution. If we are consistent Christians, we will not need to do so. It will come of its own accord. The world will be consistent in its hatred if Christians are but consistent in their professions and conduct. We strive, as Peter says, to give no offense to, to anyone, to, to give those who would slander us no basis for their accusations, and yet if we desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. And if you never experience any kind of opposition from others because of your commitment to Christ, what might that tell you? Is it possible that you are living in a way that too closely mimics the world so as to avoid opposition? If you never experience any kind of opposition or hostility because of your Christian convictions, you, you, you don't need to go out and look for it and create it yourself in order to prove to yourself that you are genuinely a Christian. But you may need to consider how and if your life bears witness to the gospel in such a way that people would have a reason to persecute you as a Christian. And then in those times when you do face opposition because of your allegiance to Jesus, how do you respond? Do you complain, grumble, lash out in, in anger, shrink back in fear? Are you surprised or ashamed? Do you just want to say that's not fair or Sure, I, I want to follow Jesus, but I didn't sign up for this. Or do you rejoice and glorify God because of what it means? It means that you belong to Him. That your faith is being proven as genuine. And that the Spirit of the living God rests upon you. You might say, I want to respond that way, but it's still not fair. It's not fair that the deck seems stacked against Christians. It's not fair that we are mistreated and hated without cause. 
And you'd be right. It's not fair in a cosmic, objective way. We shouldn't expect fairness from a world broken by sin. We don't live in a neutral world. We are exiles in a hostile one. It's not our job to make things fair for ourselves. Instead, Peter gives us this summary exhortation in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We don't lash out in anger at the world. We don't assimilate into the world to avoid suffering. We don't draw back and abandon the world. We are to entrust ourselves to God's care and persevere in doing good in the world in spite of their hostility. This is really just a way of summarizing all that Peter has been saying throughout this letter about Christian conduct. Entrust yourself to God in the midst of your trials as you wait to receive what He has promised, which is not for this world but the next. And while you wait, persevere in doing good as a witness to the world. Entrust yourself to God and do good. We saw back in chapter 2 that this is what Jesus did when He suffered unjustly. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He didn't seek to vindicate Himself, nor to secure fairness or justice for Himself. He left that to God. You want to talk about the ultimate that's not fair moment, think about the mockery of a trial that Jesus went through, the false witnesses, the slander, the abuse. Think about the death sentence He bore while a murderer went free. Think about the suffering He endured at the hands of sinful men. They hated Him without cause. If there was anyone who had ever had reason to cry out, that's not fair, it was Jesus. But He didn't. Or did he seek to rectify the situation himself? He entrusted himself to God and did good. And so we are to do the same. We're not to seek to vindicate ourselves before the world. If we do, it might show that we actually value the world's approval more highly than the Lord's. That we're looking to receive our inheritance now rather than waiting on the Lord. We're to leave our vindication to God and trust ourselves to the care of him who raises the dead and seek to do good. We can do this with confidence, Peter says, because God is faithful. We can entrust ourselves to God because God can be trusted with our lives. We can entrust ourselves to God and not seek to vindicate ourselves because we can trust God to vindicate us ultimately. And we know that God is faithful not only because He tells us it is so, which should be reason enough, but also because He demonstrates His faithfulness to us in Christ. Christ is not only the example of how we follow in entrusting ourselves to God, He Himself in His suffering and death and resurrection is the evidence of God's faithfulness to His promises. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Christ willingly suffered and died according to the will of God for our sins in order that we would not suffer the just and eternal penalty of our sin, but that we would be reconciled to God 
He received the punishment that we deserved in order that we might receive the blessing that He deserves. And you might hear that and say, that's not fair, and you're right. That's not fair. That's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are a faithful God true to all of His promises. Not one has failed, not one, nor will one ever fail. Lord, help us to value Your approval more than that of the world's. Help us to not not think so highly of the world's love for us that we would abandon our hope in what you have promised for it. The temptation is great. You know it. Lord, help us. Help us to endure, to glorify you, to look forward 